Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he danced in front of the Liberty Bell with his kid and was featured in the news, Pat Flynn. Audience driven. This is a term that has become a part of our vocabulary here at Team SPI within the last about six months, and it's largely due to, not just because we put on an event called Audience Driven, and big thank you to you if you attended that and you watched that, if you were a partner or a speaker specifically on that, just thank you so, so much. That just happened last week at the time of this recording coming out. Thank you. But Audience Driven has entered our vocabulary, and perhaps this is the reason why we named our event the Audience Driven Summit, because this is the approach that, in fact, we've always taken with business, and it's the stance we're taking with how we believe all businesses should be created. And I know that this is a big thing because our last guest who came on on Wednesday, Arvid Call, in episode 517, he built his business in the exact same way, where you spend some time to build an audience first, and then you understand, well, what does that audience really need help with? What are the biggest struggles that they might be having? And then you figure out, okay, well, how can I get a few of these people some results? What works best for them? And no, you're not gonna know all the answers, but you find out all the answers as you go along. The pathway is in fact driven by the audience. And this is a very opposite approach to how many people think businesses happen. You come up with an idea, you put it out there, and then you let people know about it. And there are ways that that can work, and that has worked for many people. But it's a big risk. It's a big risk because how do you know that that's what actually a person might need? And even if you had built it knowing what a person might need, how do you know that that's actually what should have been built in the first place? Have you had these conversations with people? And audience-driven solves all the problems. It removes so much risk. I'm not gonna say there's no risk. There's always a risk. But of course, with no risk, there's no reward. There's always a risk, but we can reduce the chances of something being a complete failure or, no, I don't wanna say failure, because failure is good, right? Fail means first attempt in learning, F-A-I-L. But what I mean is, it reduces the chances that we'll continue to struggle with, well, what do we do next? And it increases the chances of removing the guesswork. Because when you remove the guesswork, everything becomes so much easier. So it makes complete sense to go to who for advice? To go to your own audience for advice, to have them drive what happens next. This can happen with relation to your products that you create or even down to the micro content that you create. This can come down to what guests should be on the show. Everything can come from your audience. And when it does, it has an amazing byproduct to it. 
it also helps you create community. Because when people see that you're asking others for what they might need help with or what they're struggling with, you're gonna find that a lot of these people congregate together. They hang around each other. They know others who are like them or who are sharing the same struggles and challenges as them. It's the reason why when you go a place and you find somebody who has played the same sport as you, you already have something to connect with. It's the same reason why when you go somewhere and find somebody has gone to the same college or high school as you, you're already talking like you've been best friends. And when you initiate with little connections like that, thus then comes a community. You probably know this because we also have done a lot of things around community over the past year and a half. We created our premium community, SPI Pro. We have run events to teach people how to build communities. We have partnered with Circle. Circle is where we host our SPI Pro membership and they've done a lot to increase the exposure to what I believe is the future of business, which is community. All successful businesses in the future will have a community behind it because yes, reach online is getting harder, in my opinion. It's getting harder and harder to write a blog post and get found in Google for it. Not impossible, definitely not impossible, but it's getting harder and harder, especially as more and more people are entering the space and we've just gone through a huge wave of growth in the creator economy. That wasn't even a thing, that wasn't, like, that wasn't even a part of our vernacular or vo- vocabulary earlier, the creator economy, and now we're in it. And as a result, we're seeing so many people leaving the workforce or creating something on the side to now add more noise, hopefully good noise. And the truth is, it is noise to people who it doesn't matter to. And that's why when you are creating noise, we really need to understand our positioning. We really need to understand the words that we're saying and where we're reaching out to people to. And through those conversations, you gain more more experience, more understanding of the language that people can respond to. And then you start to attract the right people, the right people that you can then use to drive decision-making, audience-driven again. You know, this is interesting. Back in the day when I started Smart Passive Income, it was all about passive income. That was the hook, right? And, you know, I'm not going to say I wish it was different, but it was perfect for back then because that's what people wanted. I was writing about things like eHow.com and how you could write articles on eHow and get paid a certain percentage of the ad revenue that eHow was getting. eHow doesn't even really exist anymore, but that was a thing. I was talking about different platforms where you could put things and automatically generate an income. And that was largely a part of the conversation was passive income. And although that's still attractive, people don't even use that word anymore. People now wanna create a business that they love, something that they enjoy. And so a lot of, and and I don't know if this means in the future we might change SPI or smart passive income. I mean, the truth is this brand has been around for a very long time and it in of itself has created its own meaning. It's not even about smart passive income anymore. And we leaned into that. We leaned into that when we changed the website a couple of years ago and we, we removed the words smart passive income from the website, at least on the front facing part of it. And it's just become SPI, sort of like Kentucky Fried Chicken becoming KFC, if you will. But we're leaning to that even more and we're not making it about, hey, you can generate all this passive income. That's still possible when, well, truthfully, there is no, no thing as real, true, walk away forever passive income unless you're, who is it, Bobby Bonilla? I think from the Mets, is that, that's who it is, right? Bobby Bonilla. Yeah, he has, he's got something in his contract that, so it says when Bonilla signed his five-year $29 million contract with the Mets in 1991, he became the highest paid National League player at the time. His contract calls him to receive $1,193,248.20 each year until 2035 when he will be 75 years old. 
I mean, that's passive income right there. <laughs> that that's real passive income. Good job, Bobby Bonilla. But as far as like online businesses, it's not even about that anymore. I I, I found in conversations, people want to do something that's meaningful to them, something that actually has substance. Back in the day, a lot of those passive income strategies were strategies where you didn't even need to show up anywhere. You didn't even need to, you know, converse with people. It was just arbitrage and buying ads and stuff. And that's not a, I mean, I'm not clowning anybody who does that, but a lot of the audience here who's listening, they want to create meaning. They want purpose. They want recognition. Just a little bit of insight into what's going on in my head related to, well, where is the audience pushing us today? And a large part of that as well is with relation to, well, how do I build my own community? How do I build this membership? How do I bring people together who follow the same path or who have the same values or who speak the same language, who share the same culture? How do we bring them together? And that's why it's just really exciting because you're going to find that as the year goes by and as SPI continues to mature, uh, if it is still continue to be called SPI in the future, I don't, I'm not exactly sure, it's going to be continually adapting to the needs of you. And that's why it's really important that you get involved with the community and that you speak up. And that's something that's key because without that, there is nothing to drive to. It's just let me shout from the top of this mountain and y'all hopefully will listen. It's not like that anymore. Let's do this together. Let's let's join forces. I think that's what's really cool about this. So anyway, just some brainstorming and, and some Random thoughts as Arvid Call, our guest from Wednesday, which I highly recommend you listen to, one of the nicest guys I've met online in a while, and he's really using Twitter in a really amazing way, just being authentic, and he uses audience-driven strategies to grow his business because it removes the guesswork, and it just makes things so much easier, and I appreciate him for that, and I appreciate you for allowing me to spend some time with you here and just to kind of decompress to add further thought to the conversations we have on our Wednesday episodes. I'm looking forward to next Wednesday's episode because we always have some amazing guests here. And I love the fact that I can still have a chance to just to just share, right? It's just like you and I are sitting in a room together and, and we're just hanging out. And I can't wait till the community continues to grow till you become involved in it in a way where we could have conversations together. And maybe one day that'll be in person again. You know, at the time that we are recording this, Things are still kind of weird in the world. And these in-person events that I have always wanted to do, and FlynnCon, of course, I had talked about that in a previous Friday episode of that being essentially canceled for right now. I still want to meet people. I still want to talk and converse and bring this community even closer together. I think it's needed, and I think your community will need it too. So anyway, thank you so much for listening in today. I appreciate you, and I look forward to serving you in next week's episodes. Until then, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Thank you. Take care, and as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. 
You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, and the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000, the next 2,000 will get 250, and everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. Link in the description as well. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. It's Monday, October 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Chris, thanks as always for having me. Excited to be with you today. We've got the latest in banking innovation. We've got Tesla's new high. We're going to start with the unraveling of last week's big deal. PayPal issued a statement saying the company is, quote, not pursuing an acquisition of Pinterest at this time. This is in response to reports last week that PayPal was preparing to spend up to $45 billion to buy Pinterest. The deal is now off, and shares are reacting accordingly, I would say. Uh, PayPal up about 5%, Pinterest down about 13%. Where, where do you want to start with this? Because we were talking right before we started recording here. There, there are a bunch of different ways we, we could go, but where do you want to start? I want to start, Chris, with the idea that PayPal might have had an interest in Pinterest. Stock was initially down when the potential of a deal was announced, not announced, but leaked out last week. PayPal stock is up today. Shareholders are obviously relieved. I think I'm in the minority because I actually believe the deal would have had some potential. PayPal has very quietly added another layer to its stack. They started with payments and payments processing a few years ago. They added in financial services like uh, debit cards, direct deposit, buy now, pay later, of course. And of course, they have the the merchant services end, which focuses on helping merchants get the most out of their business. But they added on shopping tools and marketing tools. They've done this over the last few quarters. Now they've got things like Droplist, which is a technology that sends you an email if you like something online, but the price is too high. That technology lets you know when it might be time to buy. On the marketing tool side, they have what they call a deals engine to help merchants really try to find uh, customers and convert them in the shopping cart. Especially significant is this investment in Honey, the uh, e-couponing add-on for different browsers, which helps you find the best price or, or the best coupon to get a deal. All this technology, which the company is still investing in, leads to a really powerful way to make sure that buyers are going to ultimately convert when they hit a site. Pinterest's website is sort of set up to benefit from this technology. It it takes you from a a page on the site all the the way through to the advertiser's uh, part where they are going to try to convert you. 
And I thought that PayPal was really well suited for this. So I saw some some great potential. It doesn't make sense on a first glance, but when you start thinking about how the company wants to be sort of this super app, it begins to make more sense. Now, on Pinterest side, I know uh, this has been discussed a lot, and, and Chris, you've recently uh, talked about this last week. I think it's this is good for Pinterest shareholders because a PayPal acquisition would have taken their potential to grow out of the hands of public investors and, and the ability to, to reap rewards from that. But they are sort of at a crossroads, right? So, co-founder Evan Sharp uh, recently announced his departure from the company. Uh, and also, this last earnings report that we had from Pinterest showed some slowdown from a really great COVID pull. So, they, they too are, are here at this sort of liminal space where if you're a shareholder, you're happy maybe today that the deal isn't going to go through, but you're wondering, okay, what now? <laughs> when are we going to pick up some momentum, guys, and uh, for this stock price to, to reflect some business momentum? I like the way you framed it with Pinterest being at a crossroad, because I think you're absolutely right. And this is a business that early on, there were legitimate questions, particularly from the marketing industry, from people, you know, media directors who control advertising budgets. And they're looking at Pinterest saying, well, why would I spend money on this platform as opposed to other known quantities like, you know, radio, television, online, Facebook, Google, you know, all that sort of thing. Pinterest methodically answered those questions over the years, um, but you know, so th- they were at a crossroads. I would say maybe five years ago, in sort of trying to convince the marketing industry that this was a good place to spend their money. Um, and as you said, they're at another crossroads now. I think that Dan Schulman, who runs PayPal, has so much credibility, in part because of the acquisitions he's made over the years. I think that's why PayPal shares only dropped to the degree that they... And they did drop last week. But I think if it was someone else, if there was a new CEO, it was not someone with Dan Schulman's track record, I think PayPal shares would have been down twice as much as they were. And as you said, this is... I think what we're seeing is, uh, at least when it comes to PayPal, some measure of relief. It's like, look... Dan, you've done such an amazing job for so many reasons, including the acquisitions. $45 billion is a lot of money. And yeah. we're, we're happy that you're not pursuing this acquisition at this time. Exactly. And now, Dan, if you bring us a $22 billion acquisition, we won't even blink. Right. <laughs> but I totally, I totally agree with you, Chris. And if uh, listeners are interested, uh, this is a great exercise you can find this online on PayPal's Investor Relations website. Go back to their February 2021 investor presentation. There's a video where Dan Schulman lays out the vision for the next several years. It's a great half an hour, uh, well worth the time spent if you own shares. But the vision he lays out shows you that there are a number of companies PayPal could acquire on its way to becoming a super app. This may not be the last big uh, news of, of a potential acquisition that we hear. And you're, you're so right with, uh, from investing in uh, Mercado Libre to buying so many small companies that really help that engine grow. I mentioned Honey is just one of those. They have a, a great, great track record of capital allocation. So, I think investors would have given the company a pass. But 
relief is, is probably the flavor of the day today. Last thing before we move on, shares of Pinterest as of right now are about 12% lower than they were before reports of the deal. They spiked last week on reports of the deal. They haven't returned to where they were. They've gone lower. Do you look at Pinterest, even though they're out of crossroads, do you look at it now and think, you could do a lot worse if you're looking for an entry point? Sure. Pinterest has such a huge platform. It's got actually a much bigger global user base than PayPal does in terms of its customers. So I believe that Pinterest is starting to look really attractive here. They monetize their international users at a fraction of how they monetize North American users. There's a lot of white space for this company to grow. The road obviously is going to be a bit bumpy here. I think we'll still have some post-COVID effects in their next earnings report, but it's starting to look attractive for that reason. Now, by traditional valuation metrics, does it still look pricey? Yes. But you're getting a discount here for a company that easily will be a vibrant platform business over the next three to five years. So it's worth considering it at these prices, in my opinion. Shares of Tesla are hitting a new all-time high this morning after the company raised prices on certain models, uh, certain versions, I should say, of the Model X and the Model S. Uh, Separately, Hertz is reportedly going to pay $4.2 billion for 100,000 Tesla vehicles to add to the Hertz fleet. We always like to see pricing power with businesses, but it seems like the Hertz news is doing the heavy lifting on the stock today. I think it's another uh, angle into the demand for Tesla's vehicles that uh, such a big global rental car business sees this as a, a marquee vehicle to add to their lineup. So, yeah, I think that's pushing stock price today. But I do think the price raise of, of these models is something that investors are really mulling over. So, we've got um, the Model 3 and the Model Y. Both are being priced upwards of $2,000 more. So, when you take that into context of a $44,000 price tag and a $57,000 price tag, respectively, it's not a lot, um, but it's plenty of margin, more margin for Tesla. And as you mentioned, the Model S and the Model X, which are higher-end vehicles, they're each going up about 5%. uh, What this means to me is that we are still seeing component shortages and supply issues with Tesla. So they are taking a bit of opportunistic advantage here of the fact that there's a bunch of demand, there's this rising tide of demand, and their supply is limited. Um, now we saw them rewrite some software code on their chips and be, and be able to adapt last quarter, which was great. But the, the thing that stands out to me, Chris, is that they had a higher profitability level on their operating margin, even as they were selling lower-priced vehicles. So, their business mix tilted towards their lower-end models, their operating margin climbed. So, lower selling prices, but higher operating margins. And as they mentioned in their shareholder letter, that means that they cut cost at a faster rate than the selling mix shifted. This shows you the power of Tesla's manufacturing operations. 
I'm neither a Tesla bull nor a Tesla bear, but I can certainly see the, the writing on the wall that those who have forever said Tesla doesn't know how to manufacture models at scale, and they're going to suffer when they have to compete against the big auto giants as they grow. That really hasn't materialized. In fact, they're showing they're more efficient in many respects than their bigger peers. And yeah, that pricing power is is very powerful. I mean, this quarter alone, they generated um, free cash flow of $1.3 billion. So um, I, I think this says so many things, but most of all, it is a testament to the company's manufacturing prowess. Wells Fargo is developing a virtual assistant to help it convert more retail banking customers into digital users. The app is being designed to help with paying bills, sending money, offering budgeting advice, and all of that is fine. But as far as I'm concerned, the most intriguing part of this app being developed by Wells Fargo is that the name on the app of this virtual assistant is Fargo. You and I are, um, uh, in addition to being investors, we are also movie fans. We both had the same thought, which is the movie Fargo. Like, <laughs> it, like it, it, is this a mistake that Wells Fargo is making, or is this a golden opportunity that has fallen into their lap? I'm going to give this a thumbs down on, on the movie <laughs> scale, <laughs> Chris. I mean, this is a company that has had so many inflicted PR wounds over the last several years. Now, here you've got a marketing opportunity. You have a new technology that you can market to the investment community and to customers. And you name it, of all things, Fargo? Why not simply Wells? <laughs> Why not name the virtual assistant Wells? Uh, I think Fargo has great connotations for some people, but this was a pretty macabre film, wasn't it, Chris? The, the famous... Uh, Ethan Brothers, uh, a Cohen Brothers film, Joel and Ethan Cohen. I mean, this is not a, a walk in the park. This is a, a very um, bloody <laughs> crime movie. Yeah, the, the wood chipper scene at the end. I think for anyone who's seen the movie Fargo, that's that's going to stick in your brain for the rest of your life. Spoiler but, alert. <laughs> but uh, but on the but on the flip side, the whole concept of quote unquote Midwest nice. You think about Frances McDormand as Marge, the sheriff, who's just. She's just so nice throughout the whole film. And uh, Bill Macy, I don't know. I, I think there's, at, at a minimum, Wells Fargo needs to consider throwing some money at those two uh, just to do some sort of promotion. Maybe they do a little bit of voice work for the app or a commercial or something like that um, with that phenomenal Minnesota accent. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe like any accent, the Minnesota accent gets tiring over time. I have no idea, but uh, I'd like to speak this into existence. I would like Wells Fargo to at least do some sort of guerrilla marketing campaign with Francis McDormand and William H. Macy. If they do that, Chris, I will definitely change my opinion and, and give this on second viewing a thumbs up. And, and you're right, that Minnesota accent, very deadpan, so trustworthy, correct? And so, from that perspective, if the virtual assistant ever has an audible voice, a voice you can listen to, if they go with that and have some of these promos, maybe throw in Steve Buscemi in in that (laughs) cast, I think, yeah, okay, I get this, but with Wells Fargo's recent history of of basically defrauding customers, one wonders if you're going to end up in the wood chipper <laughs> if you use their services. Metaphorically I, speaking, of <laughs> course. Metaphorically speaking. So, 
we will see uh, how they actually market this. Uh, I'm not that impressed at first glance. Uh, last thing before I let you go, it's Halloween week. Um, as we do every year, I need your overrated and underrated Halloween candies. All right. So overrated, and I apologize to purists who know the long history of this candy and how it represents our harvest season and how it is embedded in our agricultural roots going back to the 19th century. But I hate candy corn. Oh, my God, Chris. So for those of you who haven't seen candy corn, there may be a few listeners today or maybe you've recently moved to the U.S., this is a small candy. It's sort of pyramid-shaped. It's tricolored, representing the colors of the harvest. But it's got this saccharine, mealy texture, which is sort of brittle when you bite into it. I've never been able to get used to this taste. Maybe as a kid, I liked it on, on a first try. But apparently, Brock's and other candy manufacturers sell billions of pieces of candy corn in just a few months during the Halloween season. It is ubiquitous on the Halloween scene, but I hate it. I don't think you're going to get a ton of pushback on this one. I mean, there are always some some people. And look, if if, uh, if history is any guide, uh, the dozens of listeners get very fired up about their candy choices. So already, I mean, uh, Ron Gross has gotten a lot of blowback for his uh, comments about Kit Kat, but he's also got some people rallying to his cause as well. Um, what are you going for underrated? So underrated, I like any major candy bar in the miniature wrapper that you get. It's about the size of your thumb. So you get maybe a quarter of a traditional candy bar. My go-tos are Three Musketeers, Snickers bar, Milky Way. Chris, I might have purchased one candy bar in the last five years in the grocery aisles while I'm checking out. Um, Let's not include Hershey's candy bar, their chocolate bar, because I associate that with making s'mores. So sure, bought some of those. But as far as buying it like a baby Ruth, maybe one in the last five years. But every Halloween without fail, while we're waiting for kids to come to the house, I'll start munching, reflecting on my week, my life. I probably steal three to five of those before the kids even come. And if there are any left over, I will nosh on those uh, for a couple of days afterwards. So I think this is a, a great snack. It's a feel-good, pick-me-up, guilt-free way to participate in Halloween. And I, I think it's underrated. I think more people should offer these. And kids in, in my neighborhood, I'll have plenty this year. Don't worry. I'm, this year, I'm buying for you guys and for me. So that's a contrarian stance because there are um, definitely people who despise the notion of the quote-unquote fun size bars and just push back on that. But I, I, I'm with you. Like I, I don't remember the last time I bought and bought and consumed an entire candy bar. Uh, but you know the mini ones, the fun size. Yeah, that I'll I'll go to town on those like an animal. Right. And, and just, you know, last word for those who don't like the fun size. Remember, they're usually sold in a bag. So you right. can treat yourself, spill that bag on your kitchen table, sit there with, with your favorite music on, a glass of soda water, and start unwrapping one by one. Don't let that stop you. <laughs> Asa Chara, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. It's a blast. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. My name's Gemma Bermendez. Um, I'm 34. I'm a transplant patient, so I have a simultaneous pancreatic and kidney transplant. Gemma was among those considered to be extremely vulnerable as COVID ravaged the country. The former travel consultant switched careers as the pandemic crippled her industry. I first found out that I had COVID in July, which was quite a big shock. I thought I would be OK because I'd had both my vaccines. It wasn't until about five, six days later that I actually started to feel really unwell. By the 19th of July, I was struggling to breathe. Um, I couldn't move that much. I felt really, really unwell. We had to call the ambulance and they came to pick me up. My husband was with me, but he wasn't allowed to come because also, obviously, he was positive too. So I went to the hospital by myself. And then when I was on the ward, you weren't allowed to have visitors or anyone come to see you. So it's quite scary, you know, not being able to breathe and not being able to be with family. The 34-year-old was taken to London St George's Hospital in Tooting, where her condition deteriorated in just a few days. Alone and struggling to breathe, doctors told her she needed to be put into a medically induced coma. Yeah, that was terrifying. The mad thing was, like, so I went to sleep that night and literally the next day I woke up, they came in in the morning and they said, right, we're going to be taking you down soon to put you to sleep. (laughs) It hadn't even been a day. I didn't really feel prepared at all. I tried to call my mum and my dad and unfortunately I couldn't get through because it was so early in the morning. I managed to speak to my husband. We had like a quick chat and then they were basically wheeling me down to put me to sleep. My husband like reassured me, he was like, you know, your mum and dad love you, like we'll be waiting for you and everything. And I think that really helped me like before I went down because I was I was sort of like quite nervous and like shaking a little bit, like having a little bit of panic and everything as well. Gemma spent 43 days in the coma on the ventilator during which time she was also moved to another hospital. The first sort of clear memory that I have, because I think it might have taken a few days for me to come out of sedation, I remember seeing my ICU nurse, Tenzin, who was absolutely amazing. I remember trying to ask her what the date was. She told me it was the 1st of September. And even now, I'm not sure how she knew that was what I was asking, because I couldn't actually talk at the time. She explained where I was, that I was at St Helier's Hospital, and that I had a tracheotomy in my throat, so that was why I couldn't actually speak. It was really shocking to me, actually, to be told it was September because, to the best of my knowledge, I'd gone to sleep in July. I remember trying to sort of move myself and realising that I just didn't have the strength to do it. Like, I couldn't sit up, I couldn't move my arms, I couldn't move my legs. Like, everything was just really, really weak. Unbeknown to Gemma, doctors had told her family to prepare for the worst. 
as her organs began to fail and masses of clots formed in her lungs. In the beginning, they didn't really tell me anything about how bad it had been. I think everyone was just relieved that I was awake and, and talking and speaking and everything. And they actually let my, my dad come and see me, although he had to wear all the protective gear. It was so nice because I hadn't seen anyone in months. And then eventually I got taken down to the ward. I remember I spoke to one of my older brothers and he was saying to me like how relieved he was that I was well and everything. And I made sort of a bit of a, a throwaway comment about, oh, you know, I don't really remember much because I was asleep. And he said to me, it was a bit different for us. Like things got really, really bad. You almost died. And it was such a shock. Like I, I couldn't believe what he was saying and he said yeah it was so bad they they said to us that you might not make it and I was just really taken aback because it felt really surreal like it had happened to somebody else my dad had told me that while I was at St George's loads of my friends and family had come and they were waiting outside um, for news about me and he said there was about 20 people there and I was really shocked I was like 20 people came to see me and he was like yeah like I thought they were going to storm the ward at one point <laughs> but what he hadn't said was the day that everybody came was the day that they'd said that I maybe only had like hours left to, to live basically hearing and seeing like my friends and family talking about it and how upset they are it's just it's awful I almost feel guilty in a way even though it's, I know it's not my fault Gemma's experience is a stark reminder of what COVID can do and what doctors and nurses are still dealing with in hospitals every day. How much worse might things get this winter? Can further lockdowns really be ruled out? And is there a sense of COVID fatigue? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnan. Hi, I'm Thomas Moore. I'm the science correspondent at Sky News. Where are we right now with COVID-19, the, the various figures that we keep an eye on? You know what, that's a, a really simple question, but it's got a really complicated answer because I don't think people really know where we are and where we're going. If you look at the daily reported cases, um, they've been consistently over 40,000 over the last week, beginning to nudge 50,000. If you look at hospital admissions, they're at about 900 uh, a day. And if you look at deaths, they're around 150 a day. And that is much worse than many of our European counterparts. But I have to say it's not as bad as it has been in previous waves of the pandemic here in the UK. So how does it compare with this time last year? What was happening then? Because we were pretty close to I think it was the second lockdown wasn't it in November that's right yeah if you look at cases we're actually got more cases now than we did this time last year uh, in mid-October 2020 there were about 21,000 uh, a day so that's half of what they are now but it was before the vaccine so the consequences of those cases were much much more severe so you had something like 1300 uh, people a day being admitted to hospital and there was a very very steep upward curve and that's what drove the the calls for the the lockdown because of the pressure on the NHS and if you look at deaths too they were about 160 a day but again those rose very quickly remember there's that uh, sort of three week lag of deaths behind the case numbers so 
the full impact of the rising cases last year hadn't been seen. We are in a much better position now because of the vaccine. It has weakened that link between cases and uh, severe outcomes. And because of that, the government says we're not in a position now where we need to lock down. There has been a lot of chatter um, suggesting that most people in hospital have been vaccinated and, and some people have used that statistic to cast doubt on the effectiveness of the vaccine. That's not true. It's because much of the population has been vaccinated now uh, and therefore even if you've got a very small risk of disease, because there are so many people who have been vaccinated and disease rates are so high, you do the maths and you work out that, yeah, you're still going to get quite a few people in hospital who have been vaccinated. When you look at the figures very closely, you can see that unvaccinated people are at least three times more likely to need hospital care than people who have been vaccinated. As Thomas explained, COVID case numbers have been rising. So where are they coming from? When you're looking at the headline figures, they look really scary. But it's not just about how many people are getting it, it's who is getting it. And at the moment, the overwhelming majority of cases are in children. The highest rates are uh, between the ages of, of 10 and 19. You've got something like 1,100 cases for every 100,000 in that age group. They're closely followed by their younger siblings, so the five to tens. Their rates are about half that. And then the the age group actually with the, the next highest rates are, are probably the parents of those children. So people in their 40s, they've got slightly raised rates, but their rates aren't going up anywhere near as quickly as in secondary school age children. Other age groups, the, the rates are much lower and they're largely flat. This pandemic is not over. Thanks to the vaccination programme, the link between cases and hospitalisations and deaths has significantly weakened, but it's not broken. So we must all remember that this virus will be with us for the long term and that it remains a threat. On October the 20th, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, insisted that ministers were looking closely at the data, but said it wasn't the time to implement so-called Plan B. Doctors criticised the government, saying it was willfully negligent for not doing so. My name's Chris Cohen. I'm a consultant and the clinical director for adult critical care at the Royal London Hospital in the East End of London, part of Bart's Health NHS Trust. There's been a, a noticeable increase in the number of people coming to hospital with COVID-19 in our region, which is sort of northeast London. We've had a significant increase in the number of patients on critical care as well, going up by at least 50%, if not more, in the last seven days. And it's sort of putting an increased strain on the service. Over 20% of the patients on intensive care in northeast London right now have got COVID-19. How many of them have been fully vaccinated? More than 90% of the patients on intensive care have not been vaccinated, that's for sure. Those that have been vaccinated have, have mostly got other medical conditions as well, which would put them at a sort of a, in a different place to the general public. So they may have something which may mean that they wouldn't necessarily respond to the vaccine in the way that we would expect. Are you having uh, deja vu? Is this reminiscent of what happened more or less this time last year? Things are slightly different because we've actually had a high number of cases in the community for some time. And that has not been reflected in hospital admissions because the vaccine is so effective and works so well. However, 
there's only so much you can flood the system. And what we're seeing now, which is almost exactly to the day what we saw at the end of October in 2020, was a, an increase in admissions to hospital, an increase in admissions to intensive care, at which point there was a different variant of the virus that sort of kicked in and led to the acceleration of cases over Christmas and New Year. I just really hope that doesn't happen this time, and I'm hoping that it levels off. Are you concerned what's happening in the community then? There's the, the level of vaccination, of course, but then also the, the messaging that's come from the top, from the government and its advisors. Our autumn and winter plan always predicted that that cases would rise around about now. Government ministers have talked about our wall of defence being vaccination. Well, our wall of defence is beginning to crumble. Do you think there is a degree of complacency? Well, what I think is, is that the coronavirus has not gone away. There is a significant risk to the public. And if you are not vaccinated, then there is a significant risk of getting seriously ill with COVID and ending up on intensive care. If we continue to expose people to COVID, they will get ill and they will come and they will take spaces in the hospital and they will take spaces on the general medical wards and they will take spaces in the in the intensive care unit and we will not be able to carry on doing the things that we need to do, catching up on all the work that we've missed in the last 18 months and treating people who've got other illnesses and problems that come through the front door. And I have a huge worry that over Christmas, in the pressures that the NHS usually faces over the winter period with an additional workload of COVID patients will put the service under significant strain. So would you like to see there's this so-called plan B that the government has, which is to reintroduce some of the restrictions? Do you think it's time to press that button? I think the time to press that button was a few weeks ago. I think the cases have already started to rise in hospitals. I don't think enough people have been vaccinated. And I think we can look at our continental neighbours. And yes, we'd started the vaccination programme earlier than they did, but they have levels down to much less than we are and appear to be operating in a slightly different way with sort of public understanding and a realisation that vaccination is not the only thing here that helps protect us all. Uh, There are some other things that we can do as well. But I can only say that from seeing things from the inside. The cases are going up, the number of patients in hospital are going up, the number of patients on intensive care are going up. I'm not 100% sure what more you need to know. And it is not going back to normal, in my personal opinion. You know, eventually the system will be full. And, you know, I think that people really need to understand that COVID is a continuing burden in every hospital in this country. And how important is it for the booster vaccine programme from your point of view? It appears to me that there is definitely benefit in the groups that the government and the Department of Health have suggested that they get a booster vaccine. I've had one myself as a frontline healthcare worker. I would thoroughly recommend anybody who falls into that category to get a booster vaccine. But I would recommend that anybody that hasn't had a vaccine yet to please get a vaccine. It makes an enormous difference. If you have concerns or you have worries, please talk to your GP, talk to a health professional. But this is the most important thing you can possibly do to keep yourself, your loved ones safe over the coming months and years. The business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, was interviewed on Sky News ahead of Mr Javid's Downing Street briefing, dismissing the idea that another lockdown could be imposed. I would rule that out. Throughout this process, there have been people saying the lockdown was unnecessary and there have been other people saying we should continue the lockdown. We've really plotted a path between those two extremes. I think it's worked. Coming up, I asked Thomas if further lockdowns can really be ruled out.
So we're hearing a lot of calls now coming um, from the medical profession for some more restrictions, certainly in England, to be brought back in. And the NHS is under pressure, but I suppose, you know, as you approach winter, when is the NHS not under pressure? Because it's not just COVID, is it? They're dealing with a huge backlog from the previous um, waves of the pandemic and um, perhaps uh, a bad flu season to come. Yeah, all those things. Um, there, there is this uh, perennial shortage of staff in the NHS, so that that they are always struggling, and there has been increasing demand for healthcare even before COVID. I used to cover the health beat uh, here at Sky News, and you know, it, it was very clear a good decade ago that what used to be called the winter crisis was now a year-round crisis. We'll add into the mix. COVID and the viral diseases which are now really beginning to rocket upwards and part of that is because we have been locked down for the last 18 months or so having mixing very much at all uh, and that means our immunity levels to other viruses are low so you're seeing a steep rise in in something called RSV which is a, a really nasty viral disease a, a respiratory disease of children uh, and of course there is always that threat of flu. And just look at the number of people with that awful cold that's going around right now. That's just an illustration of what could happen because our immunity levels are low. We heard from Sajid Javid, the health secretary, saying we could go towards 100,000 cases a day. Well, if that translates into hospital admissions as well, even at a much lower extent, that will really cause problems for hospitals. Plan B, just explain to us what that would involve. Yeah, so plan A is rolling out booster doses to those at risk. It's about 8 million people over the age of 50. And also to roll out the vaccine to school-aged children because their rates are so high. Plan B is uh, to bring back uh, measures such as mandatory masks to encourage people to work at home uh, again and so on. And that's because those two measures have a small but measurable impact on outcomes that if you're wearing a mask, you're reducing the risk to other people. And if you're working at home, then you have less contact with people, not just in the workplace, but also, of course, if you're traveling by public transport, you're not in that carriage where large numbers of people are are crowded together, perhaps now as the weather gets cold in, in poor ventilation. I mean, is there a chance, a possibility of another lockdown, schools closed, um, non-essential shops, stay-at-home orders, no mixing, all that? You would never say never with this virus, um, but with the virus as it is now, so Delta, um, much more transmissible than the Alpha variant that we were dealing with this time last year, but still kept under a degree of control by the vaccine, uh, you would say it's unlikely that we're going to be in a situation where we're going to need another major lockdown for weeks at end. I say that because if cases, even if they do reach very high levels, if they remain in young people, in in children, there will come a point where immunity in that group is so high, um, both from the few who have had the vaccine, and it has to be said vaccination levels are very low, and about 16% in, in secondary school aged children's. If you add that to about the 50% who've had the natural infection, got natural immunity from the infection, uh, according to the chief medical officer, we're going to get towards the point where the virus will find it quite difficult to spread in the classroom. And so it will burn itself out. And as long as immunity in the wider population from the vaccine remains high, then the virus should run out of room. There's an argument 
for plan B, certainly, to slow this upward trajectory. But there's also an argument for letting it loose, that while the flu rates are quite low, why not let it go through the classrooms, build up that immunity, shut down the opportunities for the virus to spread before things get really tight in the winter? And scientists fall in those two camps. There's a glimmer of hope in some of that, Thomas. And in terms of that happening, in England, are they looking north of the border at Scotland, where cases were higher than England, but seem to be coming down a bit? You know, what's happened in Scotland is really interesting because their rates, for every 100,000 people in the population, England's are about 450, Wales it's 625, and Scotland it's 300. And yet, even though um, Scotland has a much lower rate than England, they've got much tighter restrictions. So north of the border, people are still encouraged to wear masks. They now have vaccine passports uh, for entry to some venues. And it's also worth noting that their academic year is three weeks ahead of of England. So they went back to school after the summer break in in August and they've already had their half term. Now, so they saw a very steep rise earlier than England, perhaps because of schools, and their numbers have come down um, and they've remained flat uh, even while England's have gone up. Now, you can't say any one of those is the factor, but it's probably altogether having an impact on what you are seeing north of the border. Just give us, to take away from this podcast, one key number to keep watching. You know, which is the one that the government concentrates on? Hospitals. And they always have. All the way through this pandemic, public policy has been driven by what's happening in the NHS. They don't want to get to the situation that we began to see in Italy in February, March of, of 2020, where doctors were, in effect, having to choose who was getting medical care. And that's an awful situation for any country to be in. And for a country that prides itself on having such a fantastic health service as we do, you know, for any government, that just would not be even remotely something that they would want to contemplate. They will want to make sure that they are rolling out the booster doses as quickly as possible, at least six months after people had their second dose. Uh, because that really is key. That's the point where immunity is waning significantly. And for these over 50 group who are the, the ones who are most likely to go to hospital, they're the ones that they really need to target the resources at to make sure that they're fully protected as we go into the winter, as our behaviour does become a little bit more risky because we're not wearing those masks and we are beginning to huddle together indoors with essential heating on. Gemma admitted that despite taking precautions such as mask wearing and regularly washing her hands, she'd probably been a little complacent after being double jabbed. She considers herself one of the lucky ones. I think what drove it home for me as well was that one of my close friends also got COVID and we were sort of hoping and praying that he would recover again another renal kidney patient but unfortunately he passed away we basically found that out the sort of second week that I was on the ward it was just so upsetting because in my head I had lots of thoughts where I thought well why me like how comes I recovered and he didn't you know and it's that kind of of thought I think that's made me want to try really hard to make the most of obviously what this is which is a second chance 
I've tried to sort of remain really positive every time I've managed to do something new, like stand up for the first time, walk a bit on the Zimmer frame. It's just filled me with happiness and joy. And the physios are always like, oh, you're always cheerful. And I'm like, well, yeah, because, you know, um, I have every reason to be, don't I? Like I get to see my family. I get to walk out of the hospital. You know, I, I've got to come home now. And even though I know it's it's going to be a really long time for me to recover and get back to normal, I'm just so happy to be here. Jana left hospital on October the 18th, almost three months after being admitted. Her experience of COVID has left her fearful of catching the virus again, and so she is being even more careful than before. It does so much more than just make you sit and cough. You know, it can make people have to have amputations because of the clots. Like, I got told that I had some new clots developed, so I now have to take blood thinners for the next three months to try and prevent them from coming back. And it's things like that, you know, people with long COVID who aren't able to breathe properly months down the line. Just so much bigger than, oh, it's just like the flu. It's it's not. It really isn't. Thinking about if I hadn't had the vaccine at all, what would have happened is even scarier because obviously I had it and I still got this bad. I am definitely like pro-vaccine. I think anything that you can have that can help you potentially not having to go through what I've experienced or other people have experienced is worth it. What I would probably say to people heading into winter is COVID is real and unfortunately it's here. It's probably going to be here for a while. So it's just about common sense, really. Like if you're going into a place that maybe not got a lot of space and there's a lot of people, wear a mask, you know, like even if it's only for the 10 minutes that you're in there, because it might protect you or protect somebody else from getting COVID if you've maybe caught it and have no idea you have it, you know, washing your hands. I mean, that's something we should be doing anyway, really. And I mean, mask wearing if a surgeon can wear a mask for 12 hours and perform life-saving surgery i think you can probably wear a mask for 20 minutes to go into sainsbury's and do a shop my thanks to our guests and to you for listening to the sky news daily podcast hosted by me dermot murnahan this edition was produced by annie joyce along with our interviews producer tatiana alderson as always you can follow the latest on the covid situation on sky news our app and social channels if you've enjoyed this podcast, we've plenty more like it where you found this one. And do feel free to leave us a review while you're there. The driver told us to throw every luggage we brought with us in the sea. 21 extraordinary personal stories from some of this century's biggest news events. The Chilean mine rescue has to be one of the most amazing stories that I've ever covered. Storycast 21 from Sky News. Listen, follow, subscribe. Eyewitnesses said a wall of water appeared to simply rise out of the sea. There was no warning. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review.